0: mm mm-hmm. Welcome to the 65th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID 19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the Popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, best selling author, and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, on Caring: How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, RobertPerlMD.com. Let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life, and then go on to discuss some medical issues of a broader impact. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, both Pfizer and Moderna submitted requests to the FDA for authorization of their updated COVID-19 boosters, and both were approved. Each of these modified vaccines was designed to produce an immune response both to the original virus and the most recent Omicron strains. Pfizer uses a 30 microgram dose for individuals 12 and older, but generally uses a 50 microgram dose for individuals 18 and over. Both would be given a minimum of two months after the last shot. Both vaccines were approved without clinical testing. The thinking is that given how the updated vaccines so closely resemble the original ones, and they had been proven efficacious and safe, that skipping this step would allow people to become protected months before they otherwise would be, if final approval required a, a many-month human trial. This is exactly what we do with the annual flu booster. We've not encountered any difficulties. Laboratory data indicate that both vaccines provide good protection against all of the recent variants, including the BA.5 mutant that we've discussed on the show for the past few months. In the most recent Axios survey, 80% of people who had received the original vaccine said they would be likely to get this updated booster when it became available. This is a little surprising given that only half of people have chosen to receive the first booster that was proven to significantly reduce the risk of serious illness. But it's doubtful that those individuals who remain unvaccinated will step forward, even with this new vaccine-updated version being available. Although clinical experts believe that this reformulated vaccine will provide more immune response, they don't know whether the advantages will be manifest in a reduced chance of becoming sick, a decreased risk of severe illness, or both. And without large-scale clinical trials, they can't quantify the exact risk of patients developing the complications that have been reported from the vaccine in the past, things like myocarditis. So far, the US government has purchased 171 million doses of the Omicron-specific vaccine. CDC officials are estimating that as many as 25 million cases, 100,000 deaths, and a million hospitalizations could be avoided All Americans were vaccinated with this new vaccine this fall. But of course, those who chose not to have the old one, as we said, are unlikely to step forward for this new one.
0: Robbie, how is all this information being transmitted by the federal government?
1: Jerry, the White House is positioning this new vaccine similar to how it communicates about getting a flu shot. It's being described as a first annual shot, implying there will be an expected once a year injection that is going to be updated when needed but not a booster required every four to six months. Policy experts are hoping that this positioning aligning it with the flu will lead people not to worry about the potential vaccine risks but just see getting the shot as part of a routine evidence-based preventive services. Of course, part of the reason why the flu shot is given each fall is that it is a seasonal infection with a changing structure almost always once a year. As we've said on this show many times, this coronavirus does not behave the same, but by making the analogy in people's mind, the regulatory officials believe that they can get people to see. The advantages as being great and the risks as being small both of which are true but are not necessarily how people perceive the vaccine at least in the past and as part of the white house update and aligned with it there's going to be reductions in some of the quarantining and testing guidelines this position that the white house seems to be taking is what we talked about almost six months ago, we're no longer in the emergency phase of the pandemic, exactly what we should call it, endemic or something else. That is not the question. It's that in the minds of people, in the minds of the nation, the risk that we are facing is significantly less. That, of course, assumes that there's no major viral mutation in the future that could impact either the prevalence or the severity of the disease. And even now, there's around 350 to 400 deaths per day, although almost all are in people who are unvaccinated or not boosted, and individuals with chronic diseases or for people taking medications that are designed to repress their immune system. Robbie, a listener wrote and asked about the
0: government's decision to stop paying for everything COVID-19 related and leave that to private insurers. Would this apply to the next generation vaccine?
1: Jeremy, it's still unclear. It would appear that the federal government will be stopping free COVID-19 tests and treatment in the near future, and it's possible it could include excluding payment for COVID-19 vaccination and boosters that over the same time period. Most people think, however, that they will delay that until next January, given how central, broad, nationwide immunity is for our country and the introduction this fall of this new modified vaccine. At this point, however, no final announcements have been made. As we've said, in essence, the government is trying to treat COVID, similar to something like the flu, when it comes to the flu, the government doesn't pay for vaccinations or testing or even treatment. That is all expected to be part of a person's insurance coverage. But of course, giving up a perk like free testing is difficult for people to accept. Already the monoclonal antibody treatment sold by Eli Lilly, is expected to be paid through private insurance, and the cost of that is $2,100 per dose. And since many patients have deductible and co-payments, what they will find is that they will be bearing a significant part of the cost to avoid and to treat COVID, something that has not been a factor for them, something for which they've not been responsible throughout much of the past two years.
0: Robbie, I heard that Moderna and Pfizer, the two largest manufacturers of the COVID-19 vaccine, are not playing nice with each other. What's happening?
1: Jeremy, not playing nice? That's an understatement. A war has started. Moderna has sued Pfizer, alleging that the company used Moderna's patented technology to create its COVID vaccine. Given the complexity of patent lawsuits, legal observers think the battle could take three to five years to be resolved. However, the real focus isn't about the coronavirus vaccine, but dozens of other future applications of this mRNA technology. And of course, Pfizer's denying that it used anything besides its own intellectual property. The lawsuit isn't seeking to have Pfizer vaccines removed from the market, or force the company to pay damages to the doses that have already been sold and administered. The lawsuit's looking forward to a variety of next-generation vaccines that are against not just infections, but potentially cancer and other medical diseases. Signaling this, Moderna's CEO wrote, we are filing these lawsuits to protect the innovative mRNA technology platform that we pioneered, invested billions of dollars in creating and patented during the decades preceding the COVID-19 pandemic. For the scientists listening to Coronavirus the Truth today, here are some details. Moderna's news release points to two of the company's inventions that the claims were copied. First, it says that Pfizer's vaccine has, in quotes, the same exact mRNA chemical modifications that were validated in 2015 to avoid an undesirable response to the presence of the foreign mRNA protein in the body. The second issue is the approach used in the vaccine to, in quotes, encode for the full length spike protein in a lipid nanoparticle formulation for a coronavirus. In essence, this is how the mRNA is injected into the human body. It's surrounded by a lipid envelope to protect it until it's in a position to be able to stimulate the patient's immune system, recipient's immune system. Moderna claims that it developed it to treat MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which of course happened long before COVID-19 came ashore. Of course, key points of the science used in both Moderna's and Pfizer's vaccines were supported by the NIH and developed in part by NIH scientists. Listeners to this show may remember we discussed this on a previous episode six months ago when Moderna left the names of these NIH researchers off of a paper it published. The implication at the time was that Moderna was trying to claim 100% credit and full patent rights for this particular mRNA technology. Since then, under governmental pressure, Moderna has dropped its claim to be the sole developer. However, in this lawsuit, it's claiming that the patent rights covered under this legal document against Pfizer are for innovations the company developed between 2010 and 2016, and asserting that they are being done outside of the collaboration with the NIH. And of course, nothing in the company's press release mentions that Moderna was given $2.5 billion of taxpayer money once the pandemic began to develop its COVID vaccine. As I said at the start to this question, don't expect anyone to play nice when it comes to intellectual property worth hundreds of billions of dollars. How profitable
0: have the COVID vaccines and treatments been for these two companies?
1: The answer is massive. Not only have two doses of the vaccine been given to around 200 million Americans, but there's been an additional 100 million boosters. Moreover, to be sure that the supply never ran out, the government bought more vaccine than it could use. And because there was a rush, it paid more than it would have done normally or would have been expected. All of that will change once the government transfers financial responsibility to private payers. And that has both Pfizer and Moderna concerned. Remember that these vaccines account for all of Moderna's sales. Already in the first half of 2022, Moderna has reported 10.5%. Billion in vaccine sales, and they're projecting it to double to 21 billion by the end of the year. Pfizer's projecting sales for 2022 to be 32 billion, and they and they have already brought in 22.1 billion in the first half of the year specific to the vaccine. And on top of that, Paxlovid, another medication created by Pfizer, is expected to bring in 22 billion additional dollars in 2022. Combined Pfizer's COVID vaccine and Paxlovid sales now account for more than half of the company's total revenue. Remember, neither of these even existed two years ago, and now it's accounting for more than half of the company's revenue and much of its profit, and it's doubtful this will be the case in the future. Assuming nothing dramatic happens with the virus itself, we can expect demand to drop, Prices paid by private insurers to be less and Paxlovid use to diminish.
0: With employers encouraging employees to return to office, what's happening with the vaccine mandates put in place in the past?
1: For a variety of reasons, we're watching vaccine mandates slowly evaporate. One reason is that vaccine mandates themselves and the process of verifying past vaccination are hurdles to bringing people back to the work site. And that's problematic in itself. The second reason vaccine mandates are diminishing is that Omicron has changed the value calculus. The main reason for employer-based vaccine mandates was to reduce transmission and protect coworkers. The BA.5 variant has a powerful ability to break through vaccine protection and therefore, limited impact on disease transmission. And although the risk of severe illness and dying is dramatically lower following vaccination, it's becoming clear that people who, after two years of prodding, still refuse to be vaccinated, they're likely to quit their jobs before they get the vaccine. And that's something that worries employers greatly. And finally, with Omicron, the risk to young and healthy people of needing hospitalization and dying, that's much lower than in the past Putting the pieces together, employers are in saying so, but their actions indicate that keeping their workforce and getting them to come to the office are higher priorities than the relatively small chance of individuals becoming infected, developing severe illness, and going on to die. Starting this week, big companies like Goldman Sachs, Cisco, and Morgan Chase cut back on or eliminated their vaccine requirements. We can expect Hundreds of others will follow suit. Jeremy, in Iowa, among the larger number of employers that you know and that you work with, has there been any change in their approach to COVID and vaccine requirements?
0: Robbie, honestly, I haven't heard people talk about vaccine mandates for employment or jobs or anything like that around here for quite a while. Um, So I don't know too terribly much about that. But I do know that a lot of the places that transition to work re- uh, remote work for their employees have uh, kept either a fully remote model or a model where, you know, the workers can be remote at least part of the time, say three out of the five days of the week. Other employers that have made the, uh, the transition to have their staff return to office 100% have had a lot of their employees express frustration with needing to return to the office. Um, many employers are frustrated with the decreased productivity and internal communication challenges associated with large numbers of remote employees. I have to wonder if the large office buildings full of cubicles of employees will ever be the norm again, or if the fully or even remote hybrid in office models will be the norm for years to come. Robbie, speaking about Paxlovid, a listener asked whether there is any data that the drug actually saves
1: lives. Jeremy, there's a lot of research being done on this drug, both about its efficacy and the issue of rebound. Although more work needs to be done, we're getting clear answers to both these issues. Relative to saving lives, the data from Israel recently published in the context of the recent Omicron surge show that the medication does reduce hospitalizations and death when taken by people over the age of 65. But it didn't show any improvement for people under that age. Among the 42,821 patients 65 years and older, around 10% were treated with the drug. Only 11 of the ones treated required hospitalization, while 766 of the ones not treated were hospitalized. The data translates into a reduction in risk of 70 3%. Similarly only 2 patients who were treated died while 158 of the group not treated succumbed. Correcting once again for the difference in the size of the two cohorts it indicates a 79% reduction in likelihood of people dying who took Paxlovid versus those who did not. However since such a high proportion of people in Israel are vaccinated this context needs to be factored into the conclusion if you want to apply it to the United States. Previous work published by Pfizer showed that the drug worked in a broader context, including people in younger age groups than 65. But the research was done by Pfizer in the context of Delta, not Omicron, and they only used it on people who are unvaccinated. Whether the difference between the Pfizer study and the one from Israel reflect the Delta variant, with the unvaccinated status of the recipients of the Pfizer study, that we don't know. One study from Hong Kong, again, recent has shown benefits of people age 50 to 64, and the vaccination rate there is less than Israel, but obviously more than it was done in the original Pfizer work. The current CDC recommendation is to give the drug to anyone over the age of 50 with a health condition that makes them vulnerable to severe disease, The good news is that Paxlovid is relatively safe. The biggest side effect that's been reported so far is an annoying metallic taste in people's mouth after taking the medication. When it comes to the Paxlovid rebound, the recent data aligns with what we've been saying on coronavirus, the truth for the past few months. The drug diminishes the viral count, but after five days, it doesn't eliminate the virus completely. As such, once the drug is stopped, the virus can resume replication, and it will result in a reappearance of symptoms. Having said that, though, there's no evidence that the drug makes the likelihood of becoming symptomatic worse compared to not taking the drug in the first place. And there's no data that shows that virus replication increases in people who have used it. And according to the authors of the Israeli paper we mentioned earlier, among the patients who were hospitalized or died after taking the drug, rebound was not a contributor. It's clear that if a person is older and unvaccinated, Paxlovid is a good treatment, although taking it is not as helpful as having been vaccinated. And it's also clear for people who are vaccinated and at high risk, particularly those over the age of 65, the drug reduces the chance of needing hospitalizations and dying. But in younger individuals, the drug is is not recommended At this particular time, Robbie, as usual,
0: what's the episode's newest piece of information about COVID related to kids?
1: Jeremy, on this show today, I don't have a kid specific piece of COVID news to offer you, but I did read an interesting article on the increase in mental health services being provided to adults in the years between 2019 and now. And it dovetails exactly with what we've talked about many times on this podcast specific to the growing mental health issues that children are experiencing. Specifically, it showed that there's been a spike in mental health services since the pandemic began, with 22% of adults having received mental health treatments in last year. And somewhat surprisingly, the biggest spike among adults, a full five percentage points, was in the youngest adult cohort, those 18 to 44 years of age. For many of these individuals, the added stress that being a parent made a person feel during the peak of the pandemic and the consequences of children not being able to attend in-person school, those have been major contributory factors to the psychological and mental health issues that adults have experienced. And in a group that is working and simultaneously raising children. There simply has not been enough hours in the day for those individuals to complete all the tasks and take care of their own mental health well-being.
0: Robbie, let's shift to another infectious disease. Several listeners were fascinated with your last update on monkeypox. What's the current thinking on that infection and the people who contracted?
1: Jeremy, fortunately, with increased vaccine availability, the rate of monkeypox spread is coming down. And for the first time the CDC is acknowledging that the infection predominantly is a sexually transmitted disease. For perspective, it was only four months ago that the first cases were being reported in the U.S. As of the start of this month, there have been around 50,000 total cases worldwide in a total of 100 countries, and there have been over 21,000 documented infections in the United States. Now for some more general information. First, we know that despite the name, monkeys are not the original source, although scientists aren't exactly sure which animal was. Monkeys got blamed because as in humans, the virus made them symptomatic once infected. However, the actual source is probably an animal that was capable of carrying the virus without showing any signs. What animal that is, we can't be sure. But now that the virus is in humans, they can give the virus to an animal such as their dog, that can then spread it to other animals and ultimately to their owners. Something that remains perplexing about monkeypox is why some people who contract the disease develop lesions in multiple parts of the body, including the soles of their feet and their hands, while others only have lesions in the general areas and frequently only a small number. Theories about the amount of virus transmitted, the route by which it enters the person and the immunity status of the individual all have been posited. It's logical to assume that a brief encounter with a limited amount of virus would result in a less severe infection. Supporting this theory, is research that was done in the 1980s that compared people who had received the smallpox vaccine that was being given at the time in Africa to ones who were unvaccinated. Individuals who had not been vaccinated were seven times as likely to become infected after exposure to monkeypox, and they developed far more lesions, sometimes hundreds or even thousands. The newer vaccines provide significant more protection against this type of severe infection. And we're not seeing that type of large numbers of lesions throughout the body. And of course, we're seeing a much lower mortality rate. Similarly, far fewer lesions and less severe disease were reported in the U.S after a monkeypox outbreak in 2003. However, the small number of people infected at that time makes the information suggestive, not absolutely conclusive. As we mentioned earlier, monkeypox is predominantly impacting men who have sex with men, although there are a small number of cases of people contracting the disease through towels and via other routes of viral transmission, taking the virus from inside the pustules to unsuspecting individuals. Among the number of new cases, they are declining across the United States, and globally, The number is down 21%. So hopefully, the worst of this disease is behind us. Another
0: listener wanted to know if anyone has died so far in the United States from monkeypox.
1: Yes, actually. Last month, Texas health officials confirmed the first known death from monkeypox in the U.S., and more recently, California officials confirmed a second death. Full details about either patient have not been released, although we do know that the person from Texas was severely immunologically compromised. Around the world, there have been 18 deaths in addition to these two in the United States. That's a remarkably low figure, given that there have been at least 50,000 cases. Most likely, this low mortality reflects the near universal vaccination rates that exist in most nations today. A study published in 1987 from Africa reported that among 282 people who contracted the virus between 1980 and 1985, there were no deaths in the 32 individuals who had been vaccinated, but 27 of the 250 who had not been went on to die. And in that study, all the deaths occurred in children under the age of eight with a fatality rate twice as high for children under the age of four compared to kids age five to nine. The cause of death in these patients varied from lung problems to encephalitis to secondary bacterial infection in the monkeypox wounds themselves. Another paper published in 2019 from Nigeria showed that in 122 cases of infection, there were seven deaths with four of these individuals being immunocompromised from untreated HIV. In each of these four cases, the patient died rapidly. The other deaths seen were from secondary infection of the open wounds the monkeypox produced. We can therefore put these three factors together to define who's at higher risk of dying from monkeypox. The first and greatest, of course, is being unvaccinated. The second one, and we're seeing it increasingly frequent, is uh, is among people who are immunocompromised, often with AIDS, HIV. And finally, we have young children who become infected for whom their immunity and ability to fight the, the infection is not yet fully developed.
0: In the last episode, you discussed why the government was asking clinicians to split each dose of the monkeypox vaccine into five parts rather than one, and administer it onto the skin rather than at the muscle or subcutaneous level. Alyssa wanted to know how the approach was working. Jeremy, as we predicted, this
1: is proving more complex than health officials expected. First, splitting a single viral into five doses is proving almost impossible. Most clinics are finding they can split a viral into three or four at most. In response, the administration is looking to what's called low dead space syringes, which minimize the need to push out air once the vaccine has been drawn up out of a vial. The second problem is that the caps in the vials are breaking before all the doses have been extracted so that the remaining vaccine must then be discarded. The reason is that the foil which holds the cap in place is very fragile, easy to damage, uh, as the cap itself is removed and placed back on. Finally, the technique of intradermal rather than intramuscular or subcutaneous injection isn't one that most healthcare workers have used on a regular basis in the past, and they're still going up the learning curve. Over time, all these issues will become less frequent, but the difficulties demonstrate how large a gap can be in healthcare between a potentially great idea and its actual implementation. Robbie, let's
0: move on to the broader healthcare issues. Last year, in one of our Fixing Healthcare podcasts, we talked about the drop-in life expectancy for Americans. What's the newest update?
1: Unfortunately, the data is even worse than many people thought. Life expectancy in birth is now down an additional year, bringing our nation back to the level that existed in 1996. People are living on average only 76.1 years. More specifically, the US saw life expectancy decline by almost 1.8 years between 2019 and 2020, and then an additional year from 2020 to 2021, bringing the total reduction to around 2.7 years. The last time the country saw a diminution of that magnitude, that was 1921 to 1923. The leading cause of the decline in longevity, as you'd expect, was COVID-19 infections. The second cause was unintentional injuries, most from drug overdoses. Third were increases of heart disease and liver failure and fourth suicides. Most likely these other major causes beyond COVID itself resulted from the difficulties people experienced as a result of the pandemic and the secondary imposed restrictions. Of interest offsetting these causes, these causes of more death, were major reductions in mortality in other areas, that resulted from the wearing of masks and social isolation. As an example, influenza pneumonia deaths were down 38%, and deaths from chronic lung disease declined by 28%.
0: Robbie, after our Diving Deep podcast on drug prices, a listener wanted to know whether the drug coupons manufacturers give out is positive or problematic. She couldn't be sure from our conversation.
1: Jeremy, I'm so glad she asked, since this is one of the most confusing fusing areas in the current healthcare and pharmaceutical debate. Let's start with the process itself. A drug company manufactures and sells a medication. It charges a price at which it is sold wholesale, and then drugstores sell it retail. Of course, I've left out the middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, who often keep some of the manufacturers' rebates for themselves rather than passing them on to insurers and patients, but that's a topic for another podcast. Anyway, under the most insurance plans and through Medicare, the patient's expected to pay a portion of the cost for the expensive drug, and that can be hundreds of dollars a year. Theoretically, if the coupons were given to people for whom the medication was optimal and who couldn't afford the out-of-pocket payments, that would be appropriate and a very charitable thing to do. And sometimes that's the case. However, often that's not what happens. Instead, the drug company has a very expensive medication of the patent, which is a far less expensive alternative that works equally well. The drug manufacturer gives out coupons to people knowing that with no out-of-pocket expense, they are likely to ask their doctor to write a prescription for that medication. And they know that their insurance company will pay the full freight. From the standpoint of the patient, This is a good deal. But now let's look at it into a different context. What actually is happening in the flow of funds? Let's say one drug costs $10,000 a year and the second drug costs $5,000. And the company manufacturing the $10,000 a year drug gives out coupons to patients. Without the coupon, the patient would have had to pay $1,000 for the expensive one and the insurer would have paid $9,000. And without a coupon, the patient would pay 500 for the less expensive drug with the insurers paying 4,500. But Now with a coupon, patient pays nothing. Sounds like a great deal. And for the drug company, it is. They receive $9,000 since they do not receive the $1,000 that the coupon covers rather than just the 5,000 that they would get if they had a lower priced medication. One way insurers have addressed this problem is by excluding the dollars that is paid through these coupons as they calculate a person's annual deductible payment. And since most patients who take these very expensive medications have other large medical costs, they benefit personally from the coupons if the coupon counts against that deductible, but they end up paying the same amount of money otherwise if it does not. And Therefore, by excluding the coupon from the calculation of the deductible, it takes away this incentive patients would have to encourage the physicians to give them the more expensive medication, despite the fact that it is not any more efficacious. When it comes to the federal government, it's banned these coupons for people insured through Medicare. And various groups representing HIV and diabetes patients have recently filed a suit trying to block the government from doing so. What they claim is that these coupons are no different than someone giving a friend cash to pay the out-of-pocket expense. The government, they're not buying that. Policy experts recognize the usual motivation, which is drug company greed rather than charity, is what is making them hand out these coupons for the most expensive medications. Medicare officials are aware of how much money drug companies give to various patient groups that promote their members around these high priced medications and push them towards getting the coupons. And they see these payments in all the various forms as a type of kickback, which is strictly prohibited under healthcare law. As we said in a recent podcast on this topic, the healthcare industry is filled with actions that are clothed in noble intent, that actually prove to be self-serving and make American medicine the most expensive in the world, but lead us with clinical outcomes and life expectancy that lag all of the other most industrialized nations. With Congress having given the federal government the right to begin to negotiate some drug prices in 2026, we can expect the battles between drug manufacturers and policy experts to become more frequent and even uglier in the future than they are today.
0: Robbie, listeners really enjoyed our expanded focus on a medical events beyond COVID. What's new?
1: Jeremy, there's so much happening that I can only touch on a couple of areas on this podcast. But let's plan to address many of these bigger issues in greater detail on next week's Diving Deep episode Fixing healthcare. As we mentioned last month's coronavirus the truth podcast we're seeing a growing number of large companies like Amazon coming into the healthcare industry. Last week CVS agreed to acquire Signify Health for eight billion dollars. Signify is a home care company with 10,000 clinicians nationwide providing health and wellness visits to 2.5 million patients in their homes and this is an addition to the healthcare that CVS currently provides through nurse practitioners in most of its 1,100 stores. Already, CVS owns Aetna, the insurance provider, and this week it announced that it would begin to sell affordable care plans in a large number of additional states, including California, Delaware, Illinois, and New Jersey. In total, this puts CVS into 12 state healthcare exchanges. It will allow CVS to offer the combination of Aetna's provider network with CVS's telehealth services, with t- CVS's walk-in clinics, and now with CVS's home care. With all of its care delivery b- bases covered, I predict you'll see the company expanding in the types of insurance that it provides and the demographics that it serves. Supposedly, both Amazon and United Health. United Health is the nation's largest healthcare insurer that already employs 53,000 physicians. That both of these companies also bid for Signify, and we see another huge company, Walgreens, moving forward with its plan to offer primary care directly in its pharmacies through Village MD. The take-home lesson from all these moves is that if doctors aren't careful, they'll soon find that the leaders of medicine are these new entrants, particularly the ones that bring data analytics and a focus on operational improvements to medical practice. And as a result, physicians increasingly will be employees rather than autonomous providers of medical care. Whether this will be better or worse for patients, it's far too early to tell. But without question, doctors will be disappointed if they assume that this is a passing phase or that healthcare is too complex for the industry giants to master. Jeremy, let me ask you, how would you feel getting your health care and your son's medical care through Amazon or a large drugstore like CVS or Walgreens?
0: Robbie, I actually have mixed feelings about this. On one hand, uh, I can see it potentially being convenient, but I know how little these organizations value customer service. I mean, honestly, you go to CVS or Walgreens and you're gonna be in line forever waiting for stuff. And it's not, I mean, it's overpriced and inconvenient. On Amazon it's convenient and fast, but their customer service definitely leads something to be desired. I've seen Walgreens and CVS both with terrible long wait times, awful customer service. Uh, With companies like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, et cetera, they always seem to be massively understaffed with long wait times and, like I said, terrible customer service. Not only that, I like having the relationship I have with my PCP and my son's PCP. I would rather go to a quick care or use telehealth associated with that system or the local university system. Knowing how little these companies focus on customer service and face-to-face positive interaction, I have little faith that they'll have good customer service or a positive consumer experience for anything else they do, to be honest.
1: Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, earlier we mentioned the precipitous decline in overall American life expectancy, and that's troublesome. But inside the data, there's an equally disturbing set of numbers, the ones related to life expectancy at birth by race. Specifically, Asians have the longest life expectancy at 83.5 years. Hispanics are next at 77.7. Caucasians 76.4 with blacks at 70.8 and Native Americans down to 65.2 years. The level our nation was at in 1944 before almost any of today's diagnostic tools, medications, and treatment approaches existed. You know, that's a two decade difference between racial groups with what we believe to be equal genetic risk. What it points to is the role that social determinants of health have on people's lives. In fact, researchers calculate that these social factors having to do with the zip code in which you were born, the community in which you were raised, the schools to which you go, and the jobs you work, that these social determinants of health have three times the impact on your health and life expectancy than the specific medical care you receive. as a country we don't invest nearly as much and these other factors as we do in direct medical care delivery. As we lamented on this podcast many times, national leaders have tried to address the COVID crisis with a one size fits all approach. But clearly based on this data, based on the numbers in this report, we need to segment the population and figure out what we can do to raise the life expectancy of everyone, regardless of the specific cohort they are in And we will not do that unless we focus on the specific needs and social determinants of health that the individuals in it face. And so far, we've failed miserably.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthCarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC podcast. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth. With Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr, have a great day.